Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome down to Nose History. On the eastern edge of the British Isles, of the, of the North Atlantic archipelago, there lies the Fens. Well, they used to lie, in fact. Well, they still kind of lie. The Fens, one of the last great wildernesses um, in England. These were systematically drained, enclosed, brought under the plough, uh, and turned into arable land through the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Now, to go there, you wouldn't believe that they'd once been a, a giant delta, river delta, full of bird life and, and, uh, and other kinds of flora and fauna. It's still a wonderful place to go, but it can feel like a fairly sterile industrial agricultural setting now. On this podcast, I'm actually thrilled to have James Boyce. He's a multi-award winning Australian historian, but he used to live a long time ago on the edge of the fence. So he's got a personal connection with it as well. Um, and, and he makes these fascinating comparisons between the colonisation, the eradication of, of, of uh, native life and, and practices in the Fens and what was going on in the rest of the world as well as European imperialists stretched their reach across the globe. This is such a fascinating book. It's a fascinating topic. I hope you uh, enjoy this podcast. Um, if you want to go and watch programmes about the early modern period, there's plenty on historyhit.tv. It's like Netflix for history. You just sign up, historyhit.tv, a small subscription. All of it goes on the amazing programmes we're producing at the moment. We've got several in production. There's <laughs> too many in production. It's going to be quite a busy few weeks. Uh, lots of new programmes coming up, lots of new podcasts. So please head over there. Uh, if you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So uh, please enjoy this podcast with James Boyce. James, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. There's so many people listening to this podcast uh, in the UK and around the world who, who won't know about the fence. Tell, tell me what they would have looked like a thousand years ago and, and their scale. Yes, well, even if you visited the fence, um, you, you might not know what they looked like um, even even 200 years ago. I mean, they were, really, they were the last lowland wilderness of England, a, a vast wetland area of a million plus acres in eastern England. The, the rivers of central England used to, 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 well, they still do, they flow into the wash uh, in the North Sea, um, but up and, and before the drainage occurred, they used to become a, a, like a delta. Perhaps, I mean, if you imagine uh, images of the Amazon, you're probably closer to, to what the Fens was like than the tamed, ordered agricultural landscape it is now. The rivers would all sort of form into a vast wetland marsh, losing their way, meandering this way and that. The largest lowland lakes in England. Um, so it was, uh, 
the waters would recede off in the in the summer months so you'd have um, beautiful rich summer pastures would form um, and in the winter those areas would flood again there are always small islands um, so we, they, we still remember them by the name so people might have heard of Ely the Isle of Ely which is now still a beautiful cathedral town it's called the Isle of Ely because it used to be an island um, so these the, the, those areas were only just above sea level um, where the where the villages were most of the country was around at sea level um, these days a lot of it's below sea level ironically enough but it's kept dry and it's now one of the richest farming districts in England a, a, tra a, a transformed land uh, that we really that was drained before photography so we only know what it's like from the descriptions of it and from um, paintings of course and from poetry and, and other other forms of literature and to some extent from cultural memory but it was a vast wetland wonderland one of the one uh, a, a landscape i mean the largest lake in england dan was uh, uh was whittlesea mere only drained in the early 1850s uh but that's that 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 was one of the last parts of the fens that was lost was Whittlesea Mere, but uh, but there is a, a, a attempt at reclamation these days. So now, uh, if you're looking for fenlands now, it was a million acres. Is there anything left? There's over ninety nine percent of the fens has been drained, um, but there are you still get snippets, and you can still I mean, in the, uh, most of the water is gone. Um, the rivers themselves have been tamed into what are effectively canals um, but you there are one of the earliest nature reserves in England is there there's the that was that was preserved back in the in, um, late 19th century but also there's attempts at restoration going on as I, as I alluded to briefly before to reclaim uh, only a small area but ecologically significant area but the, it's not only about water. I think what's left, I mean, the people who live in the Fens um, talk about the atmosphere of the place that's been preserved. Um, it's the vast skies. It's very different from other areas of England because of the, the flatness. So the, the, the a feeling of vast open space, the feeling of the sky um, being all around you. I mean, it still has... I would say that the soul of the place is still there and the waters, it's always been a sense of provisional landscape and the waters are coming back um, in certain areas because of, um, you know, we can talk about later, but certainly environmental realities. It's no longer, technology is no longer all powerful and all triumphant and people are having to learn again, as they've always done in this area, to live with the waters. So there's a sense of that um relationship with the land that you have to have in that area uh, is still there there's some fascinating bronze age archaeology from there with with Kranichs, people living on on sort of um stilt stilted communities and dog yes. out boats. so and, and do we need to think of this delta area i mean when you when do we start having sources for this do, what do the romans what do the anglo-saxons the early you know early medieval period what what do they make of this land and and is it tamed or is it considered wild and wilderness? Well, it's 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 there are the Romans um, do attempt some drainage some drainage attempts. So it has a history through all the 
sort of famous invasions, if you like, the Romans, the Anglo-Saxons, the Normans, the, 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 the Vikings, they all sort of leave their presence in the area. I mean, one of the things we need to remember, I mean, people, we, we have a sort of negative, we carry certain negative associations with the idea of the swamp still in our culture to this day and think that that must have been a sort of fairly barbaric sort of area. But most of human civilizations have actually emerged in wetlands. If you think of the Euphrates, you think of the Nile, you think of the Yangtze, you think um, in, in, in India as well. And, the, and it's not by coincidence because wetlands are a, a very rich, diverse food sources. So it's not, you're just not relying on one one food source, and you, you rely, there's a whole variety, fish, um, fish and game, and also farming. Farming coexists. I mean, we used to think that human, human beings progressed from hunter-gatherer through to farmer, and that there was some sort of stage of progress. But of course, we're understanding now that um, the, the richest societies, the, the most, the, the most uh, culturally rich societies are usually combined hunter-gathering and farming um, and the the two there's not some sort of sharp line between the two in human progress and wetlands are perfect for that so that they you, in the, these these areas uh, like the fens going back thousands of years you have farming and you have hunter-gathering and you have stable secure food supplies which are um, on support large po human populations with, with, with a good standard of living. Um, but they're also very good for defence, of course. So when these different invading groups come through, they're not easy to conquer. So you have this continuity of what I would call indigenous culture. So sure, the Romans come, sure, the Anglo-Saxons come. You know, the, we have the great movement into the fens of the great um, monastic houses as well, you know, th through the Middle Ages, uh, very famous monasteries set up there. Um, but the these people don't penetrate that far into the remote marshlands where you can see a continuity of culture. So it's not like, oh, the Romans come and then when we start again and then the Anglo-Saxons come and then we start again. That that there's there's a lot more em emphasis now um and what i explain in the book on the continuity of local people ordinary people actually adapt they resist they accommodate they do deals with they benefit from sometimes they resist you know these different series of invasions and you have this remarkable indigenous culture that carries on through these through these different invasions. History is not just made by the invader. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, that we, we need to remember the agency of the local people. And the people who are adapted and know the land and know how to live with these waters are obviously in the best place to survive these different invasions. Just hugely important is the fact that just across the North Sea there, you've got this other massive riverine estuarial. I don't know if that's a word. I like it, though. Culture. I, I looked at a map of 
Holland, the coast of Holland 500 years ago, and it is unrecognisable to today. It's completely insane, isn't it? So I guess there's some, these two great estuaries facing each other and, and there was communication there. So when does everything change? Is there a, there's a, continue, is there a particular sort of jumping off point for the, for the assault on this natural environment, on this space? Yeah, well, the, what happens in the 17th century is very different from whatever's hap- what's happened before. Um, and the Dutch, as you allude to, are the key. They've, they've developed sort of uh, new drainage techniques. But the other thing that's, that's central is the rise of the centralised state, the power of the, uh, of the English central government. Because, you know, even though we talk about um, England before that, and we t- as, we, as we talk about other nation states starting to emerge, um, the the reality for ordinary people living in the in various regions is that the the national state doesn't mean all that much at that point. Their primary identity and belonging, their primary loyalties, um, is at much more local regional level. But the, as the as the national state starts uh, starts to increase in its power, we, the Stuart kings. Uh, looking for new sources of revenue, and they 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 do deals, uh, seek to do deals to, um, with with well, basically they're sort of early capitalists. They're called adventurers, um, who and 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 some of the major landowners, to drain the fens or drain big parts of the fens, and in return the 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 associated process it's drainage and it'll also be enclosure. And enclosure in English history, of course, doesn't mean just putting up a fence or a hedgerow. What it means is removing all the traditional customary rights over the use of that land and turning them essentially into private property in the modern sense of the word. I'm the owner. I've got full rights over it. You, haven't, you, you, you local people can no longer access the land without my permission. It's mine now. You know, if you're going to farm it, you're going to be my tenant. Um, so this process of effectively privatisation of the fens goes hand in hand with drainage of the fens and is pursued by the by the Stuart kings with some powerful local landowners, um, basically doing a deal with each other, and this is fought, this is resisted by the local people. It gets the story gets very complicated because the English Civil War breaks out and and people might might not know that Oliver Cromwell came from the Fens. And Cromwell, in this great dispute between the Stuart kings and, the, uh, and, and Parliament that we know that broke out into war, the Fens become a, a, a major part of that conflict because the, 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 the local people are so um, angry at their dispossession, at the at the invasion of their land. At the, I mean, it's a story of empire, really. I mean, it's 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 quite interesting that this this year it's you know it's it's four hundred years since the Mayflower departed Plymouth for the for the New World. It's the four hundredth anniversary that uh, very that's famous departure of the Pilgrim Fathers, um, and. This what was happening in terms of the conquest of the new world was also happening internally in England, the dispossession of traditional people through enclosure, and in the Fens it's 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 most noticeable because the because you do have this war of resistance, 
um, by the by the commoners to defend their common rights, to defend their food sources, to defend their community, um, and they fight it in all the way Indigenous people fight it. I mean, they they destroy the drainage works. Um, they seek allies where they can find them. Um, you know, whether that's initially in parliament, parliamentary forces or others. Um, they use the courts, they use legal processes, the same as Indigenous people do around the world. It's not just a case of armed resistance. Um, so you, you get this multifarious forms of resistance and, uh, and in certain areas they're very successful. It's not all, not all a complete failure. In other areas, um, the, uh, the, 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 those who are draining the land and enclosing the land win out and the, the struggle goes on in other forms. But it's a... I mean, I'm an Australian historian. I mean, I've studied the frontier in, in Australia. I'm more familiar... But, and the similarities, though, were, just struck me. I mean, it was... We, we, I mean, just because these people are English, I mean, it does make a difference to be English. I'm not saying there's no difference between having a white skin and being Aboriginal. I mean, these all these different different contexts do matter. Um, but there are also many more similarities than is normally, normally recognised um, between the, the story of empire. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's a fa- fascinating way of looking at it. I've never thought about that. But I, And I was up in... Um, uh, Durham, and we were looking at the for the podcast. We were looking at the um, gigantic number of Scottish prisoners that were taken prisoner at the Battle of Dunbar by Cromwell, kept in Durham Cathedral, which was deconsecrated. It was used as a prison. You can still see the urine stains on the floor, and apparently many of them were then sent to the Fens, and their names survived. So they would have, they were taking part as forced labourers in the enclosure project. Forced labourers, partly because they couldn't get the local people to do the work. Um... So that was the, one of the one of the most effective forms of resistance, because of course in seventeenth century this drainage work, digging these new uh, these new channels, you know these new new, new straight 
straightening the rivers, basically they're digging it out by hand and it's very labour intensive and the local people are refusing to participate and they actually do help some of those Scots escape as well. Um, it's, it's quite hard to keep them at the task with, I mean, it's, it's, this sort of landscape is not easy to subdue. Um, I mean, effectively, it's forms of guerrilla warfare that are going on. I mean, I, during the, during the uh, under the cover of darkness, I mean, uh, all sorts of destruction, all sorts of... The drainage works can be filled in, you know, the waters can be let out. They know the way the waters work. They can re-flood areas. They can send cattle into the into the new into the new farmlands. You know they can destroy crops with their animals. They can use arson, fire. Um, there's it's a it's a it's a pretty ferocious struggle. And Cromwell uh, effectively sort of changes sides. Really, the radical wing of the um, the English Civil War backed the commoners. The, we, the, People might have heard of the Levellers, these, this more radical wing of the English Civil War that Cromwell suppresses. Um, and that the parliamentary troops are stationed in this area to, to, to try and assert order. But the, the struggle goes on right through. And in some areas, um, the commoners reclaim the land, destroy the drainage works. Settlers are brought in, colonisers. So the parallels with the New World... Um, are carried even further because, again, the local people don't want to be these good tenant farmers paying, paying the rent. And they bring in, ironically enough, religious, Protestant religious refugees from France and Flanders who are seeking the persecution by, uh, by their Catholic overlords. And they come in to be the sort of Calvinist, Calvinist tenant farmers, much like the the, the Pilgrim Fathers are being over in the New World. They're seeking religious freedom and they're seeking to sort of civilise the land as, uh, as, and, and, and the people. The, 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 local fit, uh, the local people of the Fens are being described as savages, disorderly. You know, the land and the people are seen in need of redemption. So there's so many, there's so many parallels between this story going on in eastern England and what, and what is going on across the Atlantic. When is the real? I mean, presumably, eighteenth and nineteenth century, they can start to get industrial on it, and and they the fens start disappearing even quicker, do they? When is the period of maximum destruction? The fens turns out to be a little bit different from Holland. Um, the the Dutch engineers don't uh, don't don't know the country as well as they they think they do because the they, the waters start to return, um, and the reason is because the rich peat that the fens are famous for this beautiful deep, deep rich peat soil that go meters down which of course so highly productive and turns it into you know the, grows the crops so well the problem is that this peat when it's dried out when it's exposed to the air it decomposes and it starts to sink so the land literally subsides and that means that you need to do more and more pump pumping to get the water out because it was only so marginally above sea level before it soon sinks below sea level so by the end of the 17th century the water it's a lot of these areas are starting to flood again and so they bring bring in of course windmills but windmills during the course of the 18th century are not proving up to the task either so the area is sort of turning into a lot of it is turning into mixed farming marsh area 
um, and it's really not until the st steam power comes in in the early 19th century and then more and more powerful steam engines are developed during the course of the 19th century that they finally achieve a victory or what seems to be a permanent victory over the waters. But the, the paradox of the fens that the more successful the drainage, the more successful you are at keeping the waters out, the greater the problem becomes, the greater the subsistence becomes and the, 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 the greater the energy costs and also, of course, the fertility of the soil declines over time as you lose more of the peat. So you have, you have less productive land and higher energy costs. So it's the 19th century when they steam power, when they believe they achieve a permanent victory, but I don't think there'd be too many engineers uh, working in the fens now, local farmers or local people who would quite depict it in that way. Well, and the ultimate paradox is, yeah, there is the is the carbon emissions of the energy causing sea level rise. So there's many paradoxes. Yes, it's a it's a circular. That's a really interesting point, Dan, and it's one that um, didn't occur to me so much when I was writing it, but uh, someone was pointing out since as well that it's an circuit that the the industrial revolution which seems to solve the problem has also um caused the rising sea levels which is going to make ultimately we have to learn to live with the waters there's not going to be and that's what's happening i mean there's some terrific projects like the great fen project which is the the largest of the restoration work and they're drawing on traditional knowledge they're not just, it's scientific knowledge certainly and they they're working with with engineers and, and 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 the scientists and the ecologists but they're also looking back at how people traditionally lived with these waters it's always been a human managed landscape so certain areas are allowed to be being, being flooded at certain times of the year reeds have been cut at certain times of the year certain areas have been grazed at certain times of the year and you have the they're trying to learn again so it's not a case of some areas being returned to, to, to nature and some areas um, being farmed, but how do you integrate these? How do you create a landscape that works for nature and that works for people? And, you know, so in this way, it's a microcosm of what we've got to do um, as a planet, as, as uh, you know, as human beings of how we've got to learn to live with nature rather than trying to defeat the waters. How do we... How do we live with these natural forces? Um, and that's the Fens is that that's always been how the you know the indigenous people of the Fens have lived in this area over thousands of years, and that's what we're learning to do again. Um, so it's sort of a it's a work in it's a non it, it, it's not like that history's come to an end in the nineteenth century with these with these great super powerful steam engines and the draining of Whittlesea Mere in 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 the early eighteen fifties, which seemed to symbolise the end of the fens. So if you go to the fens today, those big, huge, sweeping farmlands that are, are so famous, are there massive pumps just pumping water out of those the whole time? Yeah, they're having to... So there's massive pumps working. Um, it's a very sophisticated operation. I mean, it's quite amazing to walk in, in the... It's a highly industrialised agricultural landscape, much of it. I mean, still the beautiful traditional, the beautiful old villages are still there and Ely Cathedral still there. And, um, and, but the, to walk in those fields and you see, you look up, you can't even see the river um, because it's metres above your head, it's flowing above your head and there's a whole series of drainage 
ditches and 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 dikes and systems that really are getting the water um, from that ground level up into those rivers, which uh, can be as I say a few meters above your head. Um, it's very strange, very strange to be to be standing in a in a field and not actually able to see the the water in the in the in the river flowing above your head. But obviously the energy costs of this. A, a, a significant um and as you and the north as the north sea is a is 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 in that area that's the old land bridge across to europe i mean it's only ten thousand years ago between that you could walk <laughs> across there so the the wash is quite shallow um where these rivers drain into um so it's a it getting the water out is not straightforward it's it's it involves it involves high energy costs and at while agricultural prices food prices are high and they can afford that that's that's one thing but um you know we've also got the uncertainty of course in britain of leaving the eu and some of those agricultural subsidies that farmers will have to adapt to that it's a very uncertain time do you build a seawall all around around the coast but what's exciting i think is that is is Again, like what we're having to do in Australia here with the bushfires, uh, we're looking at Aboriginal... I mean, people are going back in the history. They're talking to Indigenous people. They're looking at how they lived with the reality of fire in this environment, how they did bushfire management. How do we live in this this particular piece of earth? Yes, in a time of rising temperatures, but also... Um, uh, drawing on traditional knowledge as well as scientific knowledge, and that's that's what's going on in the in the, in the fens as well. So it's a it's a story of challenges, but also a story of inspiration and history. I think to to know that people have cared for country and defended country and resisted the destruction of the country, cared for their home over you know over thousands of years this is not something new that we're having to do not something that's just a 21st century challenge we can draw on that ancestral memory that ancestral knowledge in in the enormous struggles that we're facing today i mean what matters to me very much and what i've tried to do in the book is that not to write sort of technologically determinist history it's sort of often this resistance to the drainage in in history books has been written as all oh, these old-fashioned country folk not um you know not adapting to the modern times it might have been unfortunate to lose this landscape but it was always going to happen in the end progress was always going to win out it's it, the history's not like that um these people were not just victims of an all-powerful imperial state or just victims of uh, the power of technology i mean in some areas they resisted the drainage for 200 years you know that that's that's not a bad effort, <laughs> and it's and and the uh, we you know we can draw we can draw we can draw encouragement and strength from that story. Uh, well, amazing! Thank you very much. I feel encouraged and strengthened, um, and I want to go and visit. I've been to the fence for a while. I'm going to visit now. So thank you. You've inspired me. Um, you uh, your book is called. It's called Imperial Mud: The Fight for the Fens, and I call it Imperial Mud because I do position the story in this context of empire. Um, it, what's going on in eastern England has so many parallels with what was going on in, you know, across the New World. Um, and the, and I, you know, I present the, the people are in, as indigenous people caring for their country in, in relationship to their country. I talk a lot about the common 
uh, what the common meant, which was much more than just certain rights. I talk about relationship to the land, relationship to each other. Again, um, something that's familiar in Indigenous stories around the world. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.